toolbox that I, that I feel need to come back to every several years because they are so important and deal with subject matter that, that is definitely needs to be reviewed. So I want to talk this morning about dealing with depression, and I've preached on depression. I've used this text probably at least three times in the last, but I've been doing this for almost 30 years, so you, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, uh, but I want to talk about depression from 1 Kings, the 19th chapter. 1 Kings, the 19th chapter. And uh, listen to this quote. Someone wrote this. They said, depression is a state of existence marked by a sense of being pressed down, weighed down, or burdened, which affects a person physically, mentally, spiritually, and relationally. In other words, and catch these words, depression is not a state of mind, but a state of being. How about that? Can any of y'all relate to that? Any of y'all know what it feels like to be, to be pressed, to feel pressed down, to feel weighed down, to feel burdened, to be affected physically, mentally, spiritually, and relationally? It's not a state of mind. It's a state of being. And according to uh, one psychiatrist, the majority of Americans suffer from a serious clinical depression at some point in their lives. You know, as Christians, we have to take the stigma off of depression. We have to take the stigma off, the stigma off of other forms of, of mental illness because many of us at some point in our lives will be subject to depression. And most of these folks, you know what happens? Most of them never get any help. Some of you can relate because some of you, you can look back and you realize there was a se- season in your life where you were depressed and you never did anything about it. And you, you, you just tried to power through it Sometimes the result, sometimes by the grace of God you make it, and sometimes, sometimes it's, it, 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 you find yourself just digging deeper into that pit of depression. Now, if you read the, if you read the Bible, you'll notice that there are a, a number of biblical faces of depression. Moses dealt with it, right? David absolutely dealt with it. I mean, Elijah, who we'll talk about today, Paul the Apostle, the writer of the Psalms, uh, not, not just David, but the, there are other folks involved in that. The various psalmists. Depression is all throughout the psalms. That's why the psalms are helpful for us, because it, it ena- they enable us in a biblical and theological way to get in touch with our emotions. And then even Jesus, right? So don't let some well-meaning preacher or, or, or prophetess or anybody push you into a corner of guilt because you're suffering or struggling with depression making you feel that it's just because you're not spiritual or it's just demons or just the devil. Listen, we all go through seasons. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he, he sweat, drops of sweat would, mixed with blood. His agony was so intense in that moment. John twelve twenty seven. at one point, uh, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. In Mark 14, 34, Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He says, Stay here and keep watch. And we know that they didn't do such a good job of keeping watch, right? And uh, now you remember, and there are certain medications, and I've, I realize that, that psychotropic medications, particularly the ones that, some of the popular ones that are used to treat depression, some of the more recent ones, are fraught with, with, with peril, that they don't work for everybody. They have sometimes horrible side effects. Uh, uh, sometimes it's, it, it can be a very long process to get dialed into the right medication and the right dosage. But uh, some years ago, I, I, there was an advertisement for Paxil, which is an antidepressant, and, be, and, and, it, and it began with these words. It said, depressed mood, loss of interest, sleep problems, 
difficulty concentrating, agitation, restlessness. And then the ad concluded with these words. It said, life is too precious to let another day go by feeling not quite yourself. If you've experienced some of these symptoms nearly every day for at least two weeks, a chemical imbalance could be to blame, and life can feel difficult all day. Now, if you read that ad, you would think that most are all of the depression that people deal with. Uh, Everyone's victim of a chemical imbalance, and sometimes uh, that might be the case. And uh, the holy grail of psychiatrists is to find just that right little magic pill, right? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the, the, the potion that will correct that imbalance and give you relief from the dark moments of sadness and hopelessness. But the, real, the truth is that depression is a very real part of life for many people. And often depression is somewhat situational. At the Minerth Meyer Clinics, it's hard to say a word like Minerth, uh, an average week at 1.50 thousand people were vis- visiting that clinic for therapy. 75% of those clients, it was said by Dr. Meyer, it would have either clinical depression or some sort of anxiety disorder. And so depression can be a real problem. If I were an insensitive pastor, I'd say, if, you, if you're suffering with depression, raise your hand. I would not do that because that's a very private and personal thing because some of us have stuff going on in our inner world that we don't really want to talk to anybody about. and We're not ready for anybody to know. But maybe in the next few moments, some of the wisdom that we get from the Scripture will help us to find some ways, hopefully, to, to begin to address the depression in our lives. And we know that uh, it's wise to get the help that you need. If you need a psychiatrist, if you need a psychologist, if you need a counselor, by all means, avail yourself of those resources. Don't suffer alone and don't suffer in silence. But come to grips with, with what you're dealing with. And so... In, in 1 Kings 19, this is basically a case study for all of us. Uh, and we see that Elijah experienced in this, in this setting, in this context, he experienced many of what we would call the classical symptoms of depression. In 1 Kings 19.3, it says this, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. What is that? Fear. Okay? Elijah also experienced suicidal tendencies. tendencies. In 1 Kings 19.4, he came to a broom bush sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. So fear, suicidal tendencies, excessive tiredness. First Kings 19.5, he says, then he lay down under a bush and fell asleep. And biblical scholars think that he may have slept for a couple of days or, any, or even longer. How, any, of y'all, any of y'all slept like just a really long time? You know what I'm talking about? My brother used to sleep like that. He and I are like totally different. I mean, I... I, you know, he would, my brother could sleep like two days just on a normal day. <laughs> but that's another, I'll leave that for another sermon. <laughs> and I won't be out, I won't be busting my brother out, you know, putting him on blast in, in front of the church, right? But then, then there, so, so we have fear, suicidal tendencies, uh, excessive tiredness, feelings of rejection. L- listen to 1 Kings 19.10. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. So for Elijah, for, for, for them to reject God and to reject the things of God, because he's a prophet of God, he takes that personally. And Elijah's depression was not just a fleeting and momentary. Sometimes you have a bad day, right? You all know what I'm talking about? Some of you have a bad day at work. Some of you have a, maybe a bad Sunday at church if you're a pastor. I don't know, you know. Uh, you, know you, you have a bad day, musicians on the gig or what, you know, 
mean MD like, like, like me, right? But, you know, but I'm talking about this kind of thing that goes on for a long time, right? And, and in Elijah's case, this went on for nearly two months. And so, uh, but here's the, here's the thing that, that you've got to get about this because, and this is what's, what's really uh, profound, is the fact that just a few days before we encounter Elijah here in this chapter and we see him in this state of depression, just a few days before that, Elijah had preached one of the greatest sermons of his life. Just a few days before that, he had stood up in the power of the Holy Spirit and confronted 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and exposed them as the false prophets that they were. And, and, and because of his faith and obedience, God literally sent down fire out of heaven to consume the sacrifice he placed on the altar. Wouldn't that be cool if I could do something like that? Uh, well, we, we don't want the smoke alarms to go off, right? But just a few, uh, you know, and then, then after that, God sent a downpour of rain uh, on the land that hadn't had rain in three years under his ministry, under his leadership. If you're a preacher, you want that kind of success. If you're a prophet, you want people to hear you. If you're standing up and saying, God says this, you want God to back you up. And God did. God did. So how is it that somebody who's preached such an impressive sermon, if you will, such, an, such a powerful message and experienced some of the most powerful displays of the power of God, how can someone like this, this suddenly be crippled by fear, hopelessness, and despair? Wow. Why would he run away as Elijah did to some dark corner of the world and really seek to die? Probably a number of reasons. But the fact is, he did. And what this tells us is this, that even God's most, even God's most faithful and dynamic servants can suffer from depression. It's not necessarily a mark of your lack of faith, and it doesn't necessarily re- reflect a sinful lifestyle on your part. Elijah was the man of his day. He was the man, the man of God in his day. And now he's so far down in the depths of despair, even up looks wrong to him. Richard Farina in the 60s uh, had wrote this. He said, been down so long, it looks like up to me. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been there? But you know what I'm glad about as I read this story? Now, as I read the account of Elijah running away and holding himself up in a cave and trying to escape everything and being in this deep and dark depression. What's so beautiful about this is that this is not where God left him. God didn't say, well, Elijah, you know, sorry, you've got a chemical imbalance and they haven't invented Paxil yet, so uh, you're on your own, dude. But I want you to notice what God did to heal Elijah. Number one, God recognized that Elijah's depression was not an imaginary problem. Don't you hate it when you feel down and people tell you you shouldn't feel that way? Don't you hate it when people try to, try to tell you, well, you know, this is, it's, it's all a figment or a pigment of your imagination? <laughs> Elijah's depression was real. It was, it was something that he could feel. It was tangible. It was so thick he could cut, have cut it with a knife. And God didn't say, you know, get a grip, Elijah. Get, get a life. Get a hold of yourself. You know, suck it up, dude. That's a sinful attitude. Where's your faith in God, brother? God didn't treat him harshly or roughly. Number one, God recognized 
that Elijah's depression was not imaginary, that it was real. Number two, God did for Elijah something that we sometimes need to do for ourselves and other people around us that we care about when they're going through difficult emotional times. And that is that God provided for Elijah's physical needs. Elijah prayed to die. But in response to that, that God just let him get some good sleep. Now, y'all know, and I know, I know, Leo, that sometimes there's nothing better than a good, sound night's sleep. I talked to somebody else this, this morning that, that had some physical problems and, and realized that, that just some good sleeping would, be, would, would, would go a long way. And God understands that. And so God lets him sleep. He, then, then God sends an angel to feed him and let him sleep some more right? And then God sends him down to the desert in the south for 40 days and nights, maybe to like the Las Vegas at that time. I don't know. No, no. But, 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 but in all this time, God, God doesn't lecture him and God doesn't say a word. God doesn't offer any counsel to him. He doesn't sit Elijah down and have a face-to-face face talk. In all that time, Elijah is given time to rest, time to think, time to reflect, time to heal. No sermons, no counseling sessions, just love and rest. Sometimes do yourself a favor and take a break. Do yourself a favor and quit staying up so, so late at night and go to sleep and get, get your eight hours. Do yourself a favor and eat some, some wholesome and, and healthy and, and nourishing food. Do yourself a favor and get some rest and some recreation. I mean, even Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People talks about sharpening the saw. Take some time for you because you can't cut wood with a dull saw. God gave him time to heal. He met his physical needs. Now, but here's the deal. God did eventually deal with Elijah's depression directly. But I want you to notice what he did. Number one, God sent Elijah to church. You say, what? I said God sent him to church. God sent him to a place of worship. God sent him to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, where the law was given to Moses. God sends him there. And you know what it says to us? It says that, and this, this is very countercultural now, because the song says, I'm all churched out. I don't even know what that means. But church is one of the best places you can go to deal with depression. <laughs> Hello. And I'll tell you what, this church is one of the best places you can go to deal with depression. I don't know about everybody else's church, but I know what. I, I, I know that when church is done right, it's a place where we can listen to God and listen to each other, and we can help and support each other. Yeah. Galatians 6, 2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Yeah. And so the question I would ask you, have you said yes to God's call to live in Christian community? It means something. Back in 1999, Duke University conducted a study of ne- nearly 4,000 older adults. One of their conclusions, conclusions, attendance at a house of worship is related to lower rates of depression and anxiety. How about that? Wow. See, we're not just trying to get you. It just ain't because we want your money. It ain't because we're trying to be, be, be big and important. We're trying to help somebody up in here. <laughs> and over and over again, science shows that people that do things like pray and that have healthy relationships with other people, people who, go, who meditate and who worship, who sing and who lift their hands and do the things you do and who pray, that people have less anxiety and depression. But, but church doesn't just stop with being in the house of the Lord and being in, in, in corporate worship. Time spent alone with God and, and in prayer and, and Bible study is a powerful antidepressant. 
Let, let me tell you, some of, some of you need to, to, to take a look at your schedule, look at, at your habits, and, and determine if you've, let, if you've allowed prayer and, and communion with God to slip out of your life. And you might find that some of the anxiety that is building in your life and some of the depression that is, that is, that is besetting you might be helped with you just taking a little time every day and setting aside some quality time to spend with God. I, I don't know how to pray. Pray the Lord's Prayer over and over again. Pray the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Just whatever you can, and then go in the Psalms and read some, keep reading till you find something that resonates with your spirit and stay there. Sit quiet and be, 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 be still before the Lord. Spend some time reading your Bible. It will make a world of difference in your life. Uh, Andrew Newberg, uh, director of clinical nuclear medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, used the SPECT technique and made an interesting discovery. I think that's the thing that Dr. Amen uses, those brain scans. He said, Newberg studied the brains of religious individuals who either prayed or meditated, and his team found a dramatic increase in action in the front region of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. This, the re- region is associated with judgment and empathy. The group also discovered decreased activity in the region of the brain known as the superior parietal lobe, which gives us the sense of self. And so the, feelings, the findings seem to indicate that people who engaged in spiritual pursuits felt a loss of self and, and what he's in, in, in the positive and in the necessary way. Newberg says prayer and meditation have been shown to lower the risk of depression and heart disease and guess what? Improve immune function. So it, there's a sense in which God sends Elijah to church because he sends him to Mount Horeb, to the Horeb, the, mount of, the mountain of God, the place where Moses met with God. Number one, number two, God had Elijah tell him what the problem was. In King, uh, 1 Kings 19, 13, God asked Elijah this. He says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Why are you here? What's going on? God didn't ask that question just one time. He asked him actually two separate times. What are you doing here? Now, didn't God know? Of course he did. God had sent Elijah to this mountain, but, but Elijah needed to, to, to verbalize and to vocalize and to speak what was wrong in his life. Elijah needed to get in touch with what was going on. He needed to explain what he thought the problem was. And once Elijah verbalized his belief of what he thought was wrong, then God, want, God wanted him to get honest with him. See, I don't know how you pray, but I hope that when you pray that you tell it like it is. I hope that you tell God what you're feeling. I hope that you cry out to God. When I was growing up, they used to sing a little song in church. We sing a lot of little songs in church. They let, now let us have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about your troubles. He'll hear your faintest cry. He'll answer by and by. And something else about here, a little prayer wheel turning and a fire burning, something else. But ha- just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. Sometimes we've let that stuff go. But listen, sometimes you just need to sit down. And I like, I like what CJ was doing in the room. Talk to yourself. But talk to God out loud. Talk to God like you talk to yourself or like you're talking to your neighbor and tell him exactly what you're feeling. Get it all out there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Put, it, put all the cards on the table. Sometimes we, I think that we pray and we talk to God <clears throat> like he's some sort of official and we're scared to be real. Just tell him exactly how you feel. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> oh, I love what David writes in Psalm 42. He says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? And this is what he says. He says, my tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long, where is your God? 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the, the, the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? David just put it out there. What's going on? And he talks to God about it. So God tells him, tell me what's happening. Get real with me and be honest with me. But then the other thing that happens, the next thing that happens is that God deals with Elijah's false beliefs. Uh, there are some ideas, false beliefs, there are some misconceptions, some, 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 uh, some unreasonable, sometimes expectations that will fuel our depression. And there were certain false beliefs that were fueling Elijah's depression. Remember what Jesus said? He said, the truth, you'll know the truth and the truth will do what? I said, you'll know the truth and the truth will do what? And, and why is that? And the reason why is because false ideas and false beliefs, especially false beliefs about God, have the power to put us into bondage. We experience those on a couple of, uh, couple of levels. On one hand, some of the false beliefs about God are that God is, is, is meaner than that mean person in your family and that he's, and he's always looking to, to zap you for every little thing you do and, and he withholds, withholds his blessing and favor uh, from you for every mistake you make and that, he, that grace is not really grace but it's something else and that God always has, he's like that exterminator guy with the, with the hammer, western exterminator. I've seen that guy all my life. And you know, he has, and he has on a hat, and there's a little mice, it looks like a little criminal mouse with the hat on, and he probably talks like this. And we think of God as that man with the hammer. False beliefs about God. False belief about God is that also is that, that if you have enough faith, you can just do anything you want, get anything you want, and, and, and it's, you're just destined, if you really believe, and if you say the right words, to, to be rich and famous. And that you... You, and, and false belief about God is if you get sick, well, you must have sinned or you didn't have enough faith. You know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of false beliefs about God. And our lives are built around what we think is true about life. And if the foundation of our reasoning is built upon wrong foundations, wrong, wrong information or impressions, then the result can be devastating. And this is what Elijah got wrong. And this is where God had to, to correct him. Elijah didn't think that God was doing anything. Elijah had come to a point where he seemed to believe that God had taken a vacation and didn't care anymore about his plight. Some of you, sometimes you feel as though God has abandoned you or left you alone and doesn't care about you and isn't working on your behalf. That's a, that's a lie. Elijah didn't think that God was doing anything. Look at 1 Kings 19, verse 14. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And in the midst of that statement, there's an accusation. Some of you might relate to this. I think I can. God, I've been beating my head against the wall trying to serve you. And everything is just falling apart. Everything around me is just going to pieces. These people are at, are at my throat. What are you doing? And we don't always verbalize it as blatantly and as, as honestly as Elijah did. But in our attitude and in our thinking, it's like, where is God? God isn't doing anything to help me. You're not, Elijah, the only one left. God has to straighten his thinking out. Let me remind you, young man, of something. You are not the last one. 
you're not the only one. He says in verse 18, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah, it's not that I'm doing nothing, God would say, but check me out, God would say, I am just getting, I'm just getting started. Started. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of, over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from, uh, from Abel, Mahola. I'll be glad when I get to these names. Uh, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Je- Je- Jehu. What is God saying there? Basically he says, don't worry about it, Elijah. I've got it all under control. I am up to something. I'm doing something. When the Allied troops in World War II were making their way across Europe to, 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 to confront Hitler's forces, at one point they came upon a bombed-out building that had this inscription scrawled on a basement wall. Someone wrote this on a wall. I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when it's not shown. I believe in God even when he doesn't speak. Listen, when we're depressed, we, don't tend, we tend to think that God isn't doing much of anything. We lose our hope, don't we? We have no confidence. We, and sometimes we don't easily see God. He's not seen by us. And a person in depression needs to realize that just like Elijah, God is working in their lives even when they can't see him. Would you dare to believe that today? That no matter what you're going through, God is working in your life even if you can't see him. He is at work. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then finally, God gives Elijah something to do. When God finishes this counseling session, Elijah was still in his complaining mood, but God basically says this, go back to work, I've got a job for you to do. Make yourself useful. Verses 15 and 16, the Lord says to him, go back the way you came and all the, the names that you're supposed to anoint and basically go back to work. Someone asked the famous Dr. Carl Menninger during a lecture on mental health, what would you advise a person to do if they felt a nervous breakdown coming on? And you all feel like that today? Uh, most people thought he would say, go see a psychiatrist immediately. That's not what he said. You know what he said? And this was pretty much astonishing to everyone. He, pro- he, he said this. He said, lock up your house. Go across the railroad tracks, find somebody in need, and help that person. That, that's why it's a blessing that 35 of y'all showed up to, to, on that parking lot. Because I don't think there's a one of us that left that Saturday afternoon not feeling energized and revitalized and blessed, tired as we were for sta- from standing in that sun and serving all day long. But we, listen, there's a little bit of a, a, a enlightened self-interest in this. We get a blessing from blessing other people, from doing something for somebody else. And when you shut yourself off from other people and it's all about you, you miss out on, on an, incredible, incredible, an incredible opportunity. And so the psychiatrists and the, and the psychologists and the various people, they might think that oh, the little various pills can, can do uh, wonderful things for people uh, to, 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 to deal with depression. But I'm going to tell you something. It's hard to beat God. God is our creator. God can do amazing things in our lives if we'll put him first, put others ahead of ourselves. Now, I know uh, you all know who J.C. Penney is. Uh, are, they, are they still open? <laughs> Sears is hanging in there too, huh? I have, I have memories from childhood of Sears, the popcorn box with the alligator on it. 
and the little and the little tones that I never know. What does that mean? And and then the and then the Newberry's a little hot dog stand with the little cup. I'm getting. I'm gonna go get a hot dog. But J.C. Penney was a real. That's a guy. He was a real man. Okay, and he he lived during the first part of the 20th century. And he and and he had a, at at at, his, at during his life he had over 1,700 stores. Pretty good for the time. And he that was the largest country's largest chain of department stores. And each one said J.C. Penney. You know, it was pretty cool to have your name on the wall of 1,700 stores all over the country, right? And uh, so this obviously had, he had become incredibly wealthy. But he had uh, he experienced some, some setbacks and troubles. Beginning in 1929, uh, some events took place that nearly cost him his life. So what happened was when the Great Depression st- struck in 1929, it was a time when he was really financially vulnerable because uh, in the good times before the Depression, he had overextended himself and borrowed heavily to finance many of his ventures. But during the Depressions, the banks began calling those loans and requesting repayments sooner than anticipated. And all of a sudden, his cash flow became tight, and, and he find it diff- found it difficult to meet payment schedules. And so then he started to come under what we come under. Well, we can't pay our bills, right? This constant, unrelenting uh, worry began to take a toll on me. He, this is what he said. He said, I was so harassed with worries that I couldn't sleep and developed an extremely painful ailment. And so he checked into the Kellogg Sanitarium, um, yes, the, the cornflake guy, which was kind of like the Mayo Clinic of, of, of the time, and Dr. Elmer, Elmer Eggleston, that's a nice name, was a staff physician. He examined him, and he, he declared, said, this, Mr. Penny, you are extremely ill. And so he later recalled, J.C. Penny did, that a rigid treatment was prescribed, but nothing helped. He was constantly tormented by periods of hopelessness and despair. And at that point, his very will to live was eroding. Can you relate to that? He said this, he wrote, I got weaker day by day. I was broken, nervously and physically, filled with despair, unable to see even a ray of hope. I had nothing to live for. I felt that I hadn't a friend left in the world and that even my family had turned against me. So alarmed by his rapidly deteriorating uh, condition, Dr. Eggleston gave him a sedative, which quickly wore off, and he woke up with the conviction, this is the last night of my life, I'm going to die. Um, he, got, he wrote, he said, getting out of bed, I wrote farewell letters to my wife and my son saying I did not expect to live to see dawn. Any of you ever been there? He awoke the next morning surprised to find himself alive. Uh, he made his way down the hallway of the hospital, and he could hear singing in this little chapel where devotional exercises were held in the hospital each morning. And the words of the hymn that he heard being sung spoke deeply to him. So he went into the chapel, he listened to the singing, and he listened to the reading of the scripture lesson and the prayer. And this is what he said. Suddenly something happened. He said this, I can't explain it. I can only call it a miracle. I felt as if I had been instantly lifted out of the darkness of a dungeon into a warm, brilliant sunlight. I felt as if I had been transported from hell to paradise. I felt the power of God as I've never felt it before. And in a life-transforming instant, in a moment, Penny knew that God, with his love, was there to help him. And he writes this, he says, From that day to this, my life has been free from worry. The most dramatic and glorious 20 minutes of my life were those I spent in the chapel that morning. You know what I hope, folks? I hope that as we continue to, to pray together, to preach together, to sing together, to, uh, to uh, love one another, to, to serve our neighbors, I hope that, that God will continue to build and to foster an environment where the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit is so real. And we've been in situations where it's real in sometimes a religious sense and in, in an emotional sense and in a, in a, in a loud sense. 
But I'm talking about a, the, the, the healing presence of God to where people walk through those doors, and without us saying nary a word, they can find that kind of healing. This place is supposed to be a spiritual hospital. Now, you know, a lot of the, sometimes you go to the hospital, you, you get sicker than you were when you went in. But this is supposed to be the, the kind of hospital where you, where you go in and you get, you know, anyway, this isn't a hospital, this is a healing space. Amen? Amen. And so, that's, we, need to, we need to be honest about where we are. We need to be real about what God's word says and what, what it promises and what it doesn't and what our expectations in life need to be. We need to be honest with God and honest with ourselves. We need to get out of ourselves and do something for somebody else. How can you do that? Well, you know, you can pick up the phone and, and we don't do this much anymore. We just text each other now. Nobody ever calls me. I never talk on the phone anymore. I just text and email. But we could call somebody and say, hey, how are you doing? We, better than that, you can invite somebody out to coffee. Somebody that you know is struggling, put your arm around them. You know, get, get, get alongside them. And don't, listen, don't be the, the, don't be the church lady or the church guy. With, you know, trying to fix it in your own, with your own strength, trying to give them your counsel. Well, you know what I think y'all need to do? No, just go, just, ha- just sit with people and listen. <laughs> just let them tell, just, just tell them how you feel and let them tell you how you're doing, what's going on in your life. And don't, you don't have to weigh in on it, you don't have to interpret, you don't have to, you don't have to give them the answers. Listen, I'm a pastor and I learned, see I've been here for 28 years, I learned this 27 and a half years ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes the most powerful thing I can do is just be with somebody. Just sit there and be there. Just, did you hear what I said? Because if I say too much, I might mess things up. Sometimes we talk our way out of a blessing. We talk, but we get the power of our presence. So, listen, let's let, understand this. As we wrap this up this morning, what God showed Elijah is what we need to realize. God is not unconcerned about where we are. God cares about every aspect of your life. He cares about your feelings. He cares about your emotions. He cares about the depression that you're facing, the anxiety that you're faced with. with. And so you can always turn to him. You can always be real with him. And let's foster a Christian community that creates a space where we can do that together. Amen? As I close this morning, I wonder how many, 